Amen. Good morning, Christ Church. Happy Labor Day weekend. I hope you're having a great holiday weekend. Uh, it's good to see all of you guys today. For those of you who uh, are watching online, who are out of town, we hope that you're having a great Labor Day weekend, enjoying it at the beach, wherever you might be. Uh, we wish that you guys could have been here with us today. Um, and it's great to have an opportunity to preach again at Christ Church. I can't believe they asked me to do it again. <laughs> um, and not just that, but I'm excited because I was asked to share on something that I deeply care about, and that's worship. Um, not just because it's my job, uh, but worship has transformed my life. The way that I view God, the way that I think uh, when it comes to just people in general, when it comes to what it means to worship God, to follow God, to seek God daily. And uh, when it comes to worship, honestly, I can talk and talk and talk and talk, but I'm going to do my best to uh, get us out here in a good amount of time. Uh, since we only have one service, though, I could keep going. But, <laughs> uh, but don't worry, this sermon's not vocal coaching, and I'm not going to try to spend 30 minutes trying to teach everyone how to clap on tempo. So <laughs> uh, instead, we're going to do a dive into what Jesus command us to do when it comes to worship and to worship God truly, because true worship happens when the heart of the worshiper is in tune with that of God. Allow me to paint a picture for you. You see, one day Jesus is walking back to Galilee. He's on his way back to Galilee, and he decides to travel through Samaria. And surely he's exhausted, he's thirsty, and he, in the middle of his journey, he stops at Joseph's well. And he's at this well, and uh, this Samaritan woman approaches him, and Jesus compels her to give him water. And he also confronts her about her love life and her multiple husbands, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, but they end up having this conversation about worship. In this confrontation, in the middle of all this, they have this conversation about worship. You see, the Samaritans worshiped God on this specific mountain, on Mount Gerizim. But the Jews believed that worship must be done in Jerusalem. Jesus had an opportunity then at that point to uh, share and respond with today's text. And that's from John 4, 21 through 24. And it says this, Woman, the, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, do, we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The Samaritan woman, along with uh, her own people, the Samaritans, and even Jews, argued for ages. They spent all this time arguing about this idea, and that is the place of worship, where worship takes place, where it's essential to worship God. 
I imagine Jesus talking to her and looking at her and being kind of flustered, honestly, and then getting to a point where he goes, shh, hey, listen, listen to me. It doesn't matter. Let's just take a second to unwrap what it is that Jesus is saying here. He begins in John 4.21 saying, A time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, this is what Jesus is saying. The location of worship is irrelevant to the subject of worship. I firmly believe that Christianity is filled with these simple, complicated truths. You know what I mean? It's like we know and we hear this all the time, uh, yet we tend to not understand and live in application of what we read in Scripture or like what Scripture says or what we hear at church sometimes. It's like, yeah, so what, you know? Like, okay, like I'm, I'm understanding, I'm picking up what you're putting down, I'm understanding what you're saying. But what Jesus is saying here is that the place of worship is not confined to four walls. Understand, I'm not saying that church isn't important or is insignificant on Sunday mornings. Uh, it's necessary even to join each other as fellow believers in corporate worship, which is what we just did uh, this morning, to worship and praise God together. However, it's not the totality of worship. It's not just showing up to 9 a.m. service and checking off the box and, you know, going on your day like nothing even happened. That's not what Jesus is describing as true worshipers. Jesus is describing a worship for God that is so intensely driven that it cannot be confined to a specific place. It comes from a realization of who God is. And that makes us desire to worship Him daily. Because true worship happens when the heart of the worshiper is in tune with that of God. Because true worship is recognizing God's position. There is, uh, there's one person in Scripture that whenever we talk about worship, we always think of this specific person, and that's David, right? And David is described in Acts 13.22 as a man after God's own heart. Someone who is so in tune with God that his desires becomes that to serve God no matter what. That's what drives a man to fight a bear in the field, you know what I mean? That's what, uh, that's what when, it, when the time came, that's the passion that when the time came, this young man stands up to the mighty Goliath. That's the confidence in the promise of God calling him to be king. I mean, what else drives a man to just say something like this? This is uh, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out 
into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It's like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at the end of the heavens and it makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived from its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect and it's refreshing to the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold. They are much pure than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my faults. Keep your servant also from willful sinning. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing by your sight, in your sight, Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Where does that even come from? Where does that thought process come from to be able to just sit down in one moment and say, wow, this is what God is doing. This is what God is telling me. This is what the word of the, lo- of the law is. This is what being obedient to God is. And this is the implications that I will be made innocent of my transgressions. God, you know what? There's things that I can't even see in my sinful nature. But God, I pray that you can reveal them to me and I pray that I can be clean from them. That comes from recognizing God's position. David's desire for worshiping God uh, came not from boredom or tradition, or because his parents woke him up early on Sundays to drag him to church. It came from the recognition of who God is. That's it. This combined with the realization of who he himself is enabled him to understand. David the shepherd, perhaps in the scorching heat of the sun, is in awe of the fact that he is standing in that moment and cannot help but to worship God. In this precise moment, this exact moment, it is currently 9.34 a.m. on Sunday morning, September 5th. This exact moment that we're currently living in, how can we not worship God in recognition of the fact that I'm standing right here? And we each have our own journey. We each have our own experiences, our own adventures that we've come to in this precise moment. I I was saying to some men the other night, uh, on Wednesday night when we were doing our Bible study, um, the way that I worship God, I worship God because 
of who I am, because of where I am in this exact moment. I said that to the elders when I was interviewing. I said, I worship God because, because I'm an immigrant. I worship God because I was raised in eastern North Carolina. I worship God because I experienced these specific things. Like every waking, every waking moment has led me to this exact moment in which I cannot help but to be in awe of what God has done. Because everything else is uncertain except for this precise thing, that we live right now to worship God. His true worship is understanding that the subject of worship matters more than the method of worship. David, as a shepherd in the fields tending the sheep, he's worshiping God in that moment. So the worship, worshiping, the subject of worship matters way more than the method. What we're doing in that moment, what matters the most is who God is and the fact that we worship him. Technology's hard. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're fine. Let's reel it in. Here's the thing. David is worshiping God as a shepherd. You can worship God as a plumber. You can worship God as a teacher. You can worship God as a restaurant owner, as a waitress. You don't have to stop what you're actually doing in that moment to worship God. The truth is, in that moment, your heart needs to be set on who God is. And everything that we do in that precise moment, in recognition of who God is, is an act of worship. Serving is an act of worship. You see, when I was in high school, I didn't really uh, consider going to college much. In fact, uh, I wasn't going to go to college and it wasn't until my senior year that through a lot of twists and turns, I was able to apply for college, and uh, I got accepted into MACU. I ended up taking a break for a year because of finances, but one day I ended up getting a phone call uh, from an advisor who was like, hey man, I haven't caught up with you in a while, it's been forever, how are you doing? Uh, I know things didn't work out, you weren't able to come to MACU. But, you know, are, are you still thinking about going to college? Like, what are your thoughts on uh, furthering your education? And I was like, you know, I, I would love to go to school, but I can't afford it. Um, I don't know what to do about that whole thing. In fact, I don't really know what to do with my life at this point. And he looks at me and he goes, look, or he's on the phone, but he says, look. <laughs> he goes, look, I'm technically not supposed to tell you this. I love when people tell me that. He goes, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but we're in the middle of being accepted for a grant that will allow us a scholarship uh, for, to bring in some students who can't afford it. And he goes, I, thought, I immediately thought about you. I'll email you if it gets approved. And it got approved, and so he sent me the application, and I applied immediately. That scholarship is called the Luke 252 Scholarship. And it wasn't until my, my junior year in college that I actually got interested and checked out this passage, um, which is a shame, I know, I know. Like, you would think, the guy got a scholarship, and it's titled after this passage. You should probably look it up. Um, 
And it is a shame, but in this passage, there is a time jump. There's this time skip, um, and, and we see Jesus as a young boy. He's 12 years old in the temple, and uh, his parents are looking for him. They're scattering around. They're like, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And they find him in the temple, and he's reading uh, God's word, the law, and uh, his father confronts him. He's like, hey, what are you doing? Like, we've been looking all over the place for you. And Jesus goes, I'm in my father's house. And then they tell him, like, hey, we got to go. And he's like, okay. Like, and so Jesus obeys and follows him. And then from there, we have a time skip. And we don't see Jesus till 18 years later. And this is the verse that describes the time jump um, from that moment into Jesus beginning his ministry. And it's from Luke 2.52. And it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. What happened throughout these 18 years of Jesus' life? What experiences did he have working in Joseph's shop as a carpenter? Where else do you think that the thought process of Jesus' ministry came from? It was through the essential development years of intimacy with the Father. As a young boy, he understood this is the Father's house. In God's presence, I need to be in. I need to dwell in the Father's house. I need to dwell in the presence. I need to spend time with God. You know, in his carpentry work with his parents, with his siblings, his identity had to be discovered through the personal time with God. His public ministry and his, his public ministry was speaking out of the life that he lived. As an individual, Jesus obeyed God and practiced the Jewish faith. He observed the three hours of prayer in accordance to the Jewish practice because it is during that time in which God reveals his heart and will towards those who follow and obey him. Because what's essential is understanding the subject, understanding what it is that we're worshiping, who, who, who this is, who is God. Why should I care? The implications of my personal life because of this eternal God, this eternal King. And it is through that that Jesus is able to share the love of the Father towards others. Because you see, true worship serves others. I mean, after all, what... What is the point of all this? Understanding who God is and the condition of our heart to worship him, then what? How should this personal experience of worship affect the way that we live? Hebrews 10, 24-25 says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another in, on toward love, and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more see you, and all the more as you see the day approaching, the day of Jesus' return. Like we're encouraging one another. That's what we do here on Sunday morning as we sing to God, as we listen to God's word, as we uh, 
dissect and understand the implications of what is being of what is happening in this room in this time into our personal life that's what's happening we're encouraging one another we're building community together just as Jesus commanded just as you know the early church did this is important for us to grow together you see personal worship does not lead to seclusion or thinking that we no longer need corporate worship. Instead, our personal worship should enlighten us in the way that we serve and interact with fellow believers. There's a man by the name of Frank LeBanc. He was was an American missionary, and he was having a lot of failure in his ministry in the Philippines. And then one day, while on top of Signal Hill where he lived, Frank had a transformational experience. Here's, it's much better to read it from his own words, and so here's a reading from his journal. Okay. Uh, one evening I was sitting on Signal Hill looking over the province that had beaten me. He had given up at this point. Tip, his dog, had his nose under my arm trying to lick the tears off my face. My lips began to move and speak, and it seemed as though God was speaking. My child, my lips said, you have failed because you do not really love these people. You feel superior to them because you're white. If you can forget you are an American, and think only of how I love them, they will respond. And Frank asked God for confirmation on what was being said, and he agreed, acknowledging his own prejudice towards these people. Out of this realization and in recognition of what God was trying to do through him and how God was trying to use him, Frank went on to change the world. He was responsible for producing literary primers in 315 languages, a literary movement that reached an estimated 60 million people. In a book called Letters by a Modern Mystic, he describes a practice that he started, um, and, and he sought to think of God daily, every minute of every day even if it's just 15 seconds. That is, to have God in his mind every minute he is awake, choosing to do so. He describes how difficult it is in his journal entries, yet how his mind wanted it more and more. And honestly, he describes how he felt deprived of God's presence whenever he failed to keep him at the center of his thoughts. He yearned for this. His soul craved it. That's that's why David said, better is one day in God's courts than a thousand anywhere else. I'd rather be here than anywhere else. I'd rather be in the presence of God. He's not just speaking of like being at church on Sunday. I'd rather be in the presence of God than anywhere else. It's true worship, the realization 
of who God is leads us to spend more time with him every day. And this leads me to my final thought. And that is, worship, true worship, is an art. I've been in worship ministry for a few years now. Um, And for a while, I always stated uh, this to my friends in ministry and uh, worship volunteers. And that is this phrase. Corporate worship functions as an overflow of our personal worship. What I meant by this was that what happens on Sunday mornings, on this stage or in this room, the way that I led was based off of my personal experiences with God and how I experienced God throughout the week. In fact, um, Whenever I didn't have personal worship time that week, Sundays felt dry and exhausting. I was working. However, I realized that what I failed to understand was that I was using personal worship to fuel corporate worship. I was burned out. in this ministry setting, and I was drawing upon my personal worship experiences to help me get through inadequate Sunday services, in my opinion. Out of this realization birthed this thought that has been developing over the last few years, and that is, worship is an art. I mean this in that worship is a masterpiece that is seen. We can actively see through the lens of God, we can see true worship happening. Sunday morning corporate worship is a beautifully elaborate painting. The thing is, we see see the end result of this painting. We see the Mona Lisa, right? We see the starry night. We see the screen painting that goes like this. So glad you guys laughed at that. (laughs) But true worship is when there's no difference between personal and corporate. There is no difference between when I worship at home and when I worship together with fellow believers. Because each and every day we should be worshiping God. Every moment, every waking hour, we should desire to do the things that we are doing for God. We don't see the many attempts or the rough drafts. (laughs) We don't know how many paintings David had to trash until he finally gave up trying to put eyebrows on Mona Lisa. All we see is the end result and not the hours of practice that it took to complete the work. We see David as king of Israel, but we seldom think of the time in the fields as a shepherd boy discovers the king of kings. We see the ministry of Frank, yet we don't understand the painful experiences he went through losing his wife and children to malaria and still serving those people. 
I, uh, I think of this a lot. One of my favorite, this isn't even in my notes, one of my favorite scripture passages uh, comes from um, Jesus walking on water, right? Um, we often talk about Jesus walking on water. We describe Jesus walking on water, and it's a miracle. And like Peter tries to go and do it himself after Jesus tells him to come out to the water, and then Peter fails and like starts sinking, and Jesus saves him. And we're like, wow, if I can have faith and focus on Jesus, I, I can walk on water when he tells me to do it. But what I think about is right before Jesus is walking on water, he finds out that his cousin John had died, had been beheaded. And Jesus tells his disciples, go ahead and go to the next town. I'll catch up. And they're like, but we're going to take a boat. And he's like, just go. And Jesus goes into the wilderness. And I can imagine the weeping of Jesus in God's presence, in that moment, he's like, I need to take time to myself. I need to figure out what's going on. I need, I need to maneuver, navigate through these emotions because I just lost my cousin after John had written a letter saying, are you really him? Are you the one? And Jesus sends a response saying, I am. And that sends John to the grave to being beheaded with his head on a platter because John understood less of him and more of Jesus, that he needed to bring himself down, that it wasn't about himself, that it was about Jesus ultimately. And so then Jesus goes, uh, walks on water, gets on the boat, gets to the next town, and all we read is, and they did miracles. And they did miracles in this town. But nobody understood what Jesus went through. Nobody understood the pain of losing someone so close that when their moms were pregnant, they came up to each other, and John rejoiced within his mom at the sight of Jesus, at being in the presence of Jesus. They didn't understand that. And it's not for us to tell the journey that we navigate, but it's for us to enjoy worshiping together and rejoicing and seeing, and they perform miracles. Our lives serve as canvases which God has a desire to paint an illustrious an illustrious image of himself. In recognition of the subject of worship, that is, God over everything and anything, we should have a desire to daily encounter his presence. How would that transform the way that we think? The way that we behave, the way that we speak, Just as it was with Frank, what we see with David, and even the result of the ministry of Christ, allow everything that we do to be in light of the subject of worship. Will you join me in prayer? Dear God, we thank you uh, for this time, for this place in which we can worship you, God. 
I pray that we can constantly remind ourselves that everything and anything that we do can be in light of you, can be out of what you have done already in our lives and how you have called us to live. God, I pray that we can worship you in our homes as we teach our children, as we demonstrate to them what it means to follow you. God, I pray that we can worship you as we work daily, no matter what our career choices might be, God, I pray that you can be at the center of it all. God, I pray that we can remind ourselves to worship you. Even when people recognize us, God, that we can just simply turn that towards you, that we can acknowledge your greatness and what you have done to lead us to this precise moment that we're in. God, we're so thankful that we can dwell in your presence, that we can understand you, that we can seek to understand you, to follow, to obey you. God, that like Frank, we can wake up every moment, every morning, and we can say, God, use these hands to do what it is that you want to do. God, use this mind to put whatever thoughts you want me to think. God, use this mouth to speak life, whatever it is that you want to say. And that out of that, people can be transformed and people can be renewed, that they can see you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And we're going to go into a time of worship.